Good morning, Philadelphia, and welcome to Pulling Focus. I'm your host, Gretchen Clausing, and we're going to spend the next hour sort of zooming in on what's happening in local film and digital media culture, talking a little bit about some film festivals, the Emmys, and putting some great soundtracks and sound score music in the foreground this week from mostly TV soundtracks uh, in light of the Emmys this past Sunday night. Glad that you're tuned in here to 106.5 FM. And I'm going to start things off this morning with a with a request all the way from Sarasota, Florida, for my girl Carol, who is uh, cleaning up after Irma. Hope everything's going well. This one's for you.
So you're listening to Pulling Focus here on 106.5 FM, and that is the theme song from Miami Vice by Jan Hammer. And before that, we started the show out with the uh, Mike Post, Pete Carpenter theme for uh, the James Gardner series, uh, Rockford Files. So if you uh, like what we're doing here at Pulling Focus, can give us a call in the studio at 215-923-WPPM. You can email me at pullingfocusradio at gmail.com or check out our Facebook page, Pulling Focus, or you can find us on Mixcloud under Pulling Focus. I'm your host, Gretchen Clausing, and thrilled to have a guest in the studio this morning. In a little bit, I'm going to be joined by longtime film writer, critic, and um, Sam Adams. But uh, before that, we're going to do one more little set of music before we, we bring Sam in to, to talk about his recent trips to the Toronto Film Festival and the Camden uh, Film Festival in Camden, Maine, as well as the Emmys and other things, uh, pop culture. I'm going to play something here from a, a series that I loved and was really desperately sad when it went off the air, and that was the great HBO series, Treme. I thought it was just an incredible example of how music becomes so integral into the storytelling. So here we go with that theme song. Where 
to begin But I don't know where to begin Again I lost my strength completely Oh be near me Tired old mare With the wind in your hair Amethyst and flowers on the table Is it real or a fable? Well I suppose a friend is a friend
So that's the wonderful husky voice of Lassa DeSella. And that was the song Love Came Here. And that was from the Jill Soloway created series, I Love Dick. Uh, Jill Soloway, uh, probably most known for her uh, successful series, uh, Transparent. Um, this most recent uh, uh, sort of short uh, comedic series that she, that kind of debuted uh, earlier in 2017, I Love Dick, is adapted from the cult novel by Chris Krause uh, by the same title and stars uh, Catherine uh, Hahn as a stymied filmmaker who travels uh, south with her husband, uh, Silver, played by Griffin Dunn, to this uh, um, Marfa, Texas, this uh, kind of art colony where they both become infatuated with uh, a smoldering Kevin Bacon, who is the, the dick in I Love Dick. Anyway, a, a really interesting series that I like very much uh, for its uh, way it approached kind of depicting the kind of female gaze and each episode com finished with a, or, or actually began with some clip from an experimental film by uh, the likes of like Maya Duran and all these other filmmakers. So that I thought that was actually really interesting. Before that, we heard uh, Sufjan Stevens' beautiful song that is called Death with Dignity that was featured in the very first episode of the NBC series This Is Us that took home a couple Emmys. And notably, one of the lead actors, Sterling K. Brown, picked up the Emmy for Best Performance in a Dramatic Series. And he's the first black actor to win that since Andre Brower did in 1998 in Homicide. And then we heard the theme song from 30-something, the film, I mean the film, I'm so used to playing film music, so I have to shift that we're doing TV this morning, uh, was, the, um, of course, the very popular dramatic series that was on the air from 1987 to 1991, of course, set in Philadelphia. You can remember Hope and Michael and Gary and Elliot and Nancy and all of them sort of struggling through their Chestnut Hill angst or, or Mount Airy, possibly. Uh, and it was uh, a series created by Marshall Herskowitz and Ed Zwick. And then, of course, we had the great Treme song by John Bouillet, which was the theme song to the HBO series uh, created by David Simon and Eric Overmeyer, uh, set uh, three months after Hurricane Katrina in uh, New Orleans. You're listening to Pulling Focus here on WPPM, 106.5 FM. I'm your host, Gretchen Clausing, and as uh, as often as, as I can, I like to be able to bring uh, guests into the studio, and I'm really happy that after a couple shows of, of just doing music, I actually have a guest in the studio this morning, and I'm happy to welcome Sam Adams. Sam and I go way back. When I was doing uh, film work at the International House, Sam was beginning his career as a film writer and critic. Uh, so he was then reviewing films for the sadly now gone Philadelphia City paper and wrote there from 1997 until the paper closed in 2015. He has also been a contributing writer and film reviewer at the Los Angeles Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Onion AV Club, and was uh, the Critic Wire editor uh, for the online uh, kind of film and media uh, website, IndieWire, and he is currently a senior editor at Slate.com, the online news and culture site, where he edits the culture blog, Brown Beat, as well as the TV coverage, and has still an opportunity to write about film and TV and, and do reviews and things like that. So anyway, Sam, welcome. Welcome to Pulling Focus. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. You know, I, um, I'd been wanting to have you on for a while, just because I think you have a really kind of you know, interesting perspective, having been, you know, writing about film for so many years and now kind of sh shifting and into the kind of the online sphere and being now an editor and also covering television and sort of this great age of television that we may be in right now. So, and you just came back from two film festivals. So I, I may live a bit vicariously through you as you kind of talk a little bit about both the Toronto International Film Festival and the and the uh, film festival in Camden, Maine. But why don't we start off a little bit with kind of where do you sort of see kind of um, sort of film criticism and movie reviews like in the in the period of time that you've been writing and and doing this work? What is, do you think it's a a rich time? Or is it a, a challenging time to get people to engage? What do you what do you think? Um, I think the answer to that is yes. Um, <laughs> you know, it's an extraordinarily rich time in, as far as uh, the number of venues for people to write in, the, just the, the number and the, the, although the profession still has a lot of work, the diversity of, of critics who are able to um, find outlets. I mean, I started 
writing, uh, the internet sort of existed, but wasn't really being used a, a ton for, certainly for kind of professional criticism purposes. Um, there's so many film sites now. I think many of them, you know, d devoted to, you know, all sorts of different perspectives. There's a really wonderful range of stuff out there. The difficult part is more in the sort of you know, making a living from it and getting people to read it. I mean, it's an ongoing challenge and the rules kind of change every day as far as what works and what doesn't. So, and, and you know, the kind of hegemony, I mean, it's no longer the case that, you know, a small handful of credits writing for the major outlets kind of, you know, either, either dictate or encourage, depending on your point of view, what people see and don't see. And that has been great for film and for television and in a lot of ways but it also makes it there's so much more just sheer numbers and there's so much more film and tv now that it's hard to i think a lot of people find it hard to deal with how much is out there and the plethora of critical voices makes it a little harder to you know some i think people in some cases would just be like to be like here are the three things you should watch mm -hmm. um and it's hard to know who to listen to and you know harder than ever to narrow that list down yeah because again it's it's just trying to kind of you know, find a way to just sort of rise above the, the clutter. And I think, you know, for me, having having people that are still engaging in kind of looking at this work with a critical eye and, and yeah, helping, helping, helping us navigate and find, you know, really amazing things that, that might be kind of hidden because they aren't necessarily on kind of the most popular platforms or, or things like that. What is, what are, what's like a, sort of a, a strategy that you may use to kind of think about how to sort of rise above some of the, some of that some of that clutter <laughs> that's a good question I mean it, it's a it's a perspective that in some ways is hard to hold on to because watching stuff for a living has been my job for a long time so kind of uh, you know, most of my friends, fortunately, are not. Um, certainly, in Philadelphia, my friends are not kind of professional culture writers. So, I, I'm including the the wonderful woman that I'm married to. Um, so, <laughs> I, I'm pretty in touch with the perspective of people who don't have you know regularly dedicate several hours a day to ingesting visual content. You know, I just I just kind of trying to think about that. I mean, if you have to, I, I think. I'm sympathetic to the idea that people really want kind of like, here's the thing to watch mm -hmm. right now. Um, and hopefully if I know the person, I can help them narrow it down. Um, the, the tricky thing is that also is that people don't really care quite as much about what's new anymore. And then if, if you have the kind of entire vast universe of the history of movies and, and TV at your disposal, then picking one thing oh, <laughs> becomes pretty tough. That's actually kind of really interesting because it's true. It, I guess you sort of had like the Game of Thrones phenomenon, which I did not watch, so I was totally out of it. But there was that kind of water cooler, like, you know, appointment viewing kind of thing. And I think there are certain series that kind of, you know, grab people in that way. I mean, I think the one thing that's really cool is people having the opportunity to kind of go back and, you know, discover things. I think the thing that I'm still, you know, because um, anyway, I was I, I grew up, you know, consuming so much film both in theaters but then also in in video stores and I and I'm I'm just kind of finding I miss that sort of tactile or that very physical sensation of kind of going through a video store and just kind of seeing like critics picks and things like that so where where might you direct me to kind of I, I'm having a hard time finding films that may have played for like a week or two in the theaters and then they like disappear and I don't know even if I was going you know where I might be able to kind of go and and see them again so that is have I said that's a good question before that is also <laughs> that is also a good question um I mean there are sites you know slate along with every other culture site as we approach the first of the month will kind of put up a, a guide of here's what's new to you know Amazon and Hulu and Netflix and iTunes and all the other uh, various ways of, of digitally getting movies. Um, there are sites like, I think Go Watch It is still the best, that will just, will tell you kind of all the various platforms that a movie is available on. I mean, they're very geared towards digital media now. Mm -hmm. So um, if you like, to, you know, to watch DVDs and don't care to stream things, you are a little bit more on your own, especially since there are vanishingly fewer places to actually rent them. Uh, all right. Well, that's it. So it's go watch me. All right. That's interesting. I, I'll definitely try and check that out. So you, I'm going to, as I said, I'm going to live a little bit vicariously through you right now because um, back when I was doing film programming, I, I used to have an opportunity to go to film festivals and that was something I really loved. And you have just come back from two festivals. Uh, one, uh, the Toronto International Film Festival, which is 
notably probably the, the biggest North American festival. And and then this kind of smaller festival that, as I mentioned when you first came in, I hadn't really heard much about. And now it just sort of seemed that like a whole bunch of people that I knew were ending up going there. So let's let's start with Toronto first. So Toronto, again, is like kind of the marquee festival in North America. It kind of launches a lot of like uh, North American premieres and and things, but it also is just a, a, a it's a lot more than than just the star power and kind of the the big releases. So, how many films did you have an opportunity to see, and what were some standout things for you while you were there? Oh, it's like the the what's your number? Of, uh, yeah, the what's your number? Going, yeah. Well, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I I feel I always feel a little uh, this this will seem like a, a big number to many people, and it feels like a small number to me. <laughs> I saw twenty one. <laughs> okay, this year. I mean, when I started going to, to festivals and I was, I was, you know, still writing for the city paper, um, as I mentioned, kind of the internet was, was there, but it wasn't, there was no, nobody kind of blogged daily. So you would just go for a week and watch movies and then come home and write about them. And I felt good, you know, I felt like 40 was a good number there. And now, um, and you used to just kind of hang out with your friends every night and, and talk over movies. And now, you know, everybody's, you know, blogging twice a day and, you know, writing more, you know, watching less as as a result, and that that includes me. So. Oh wow! So I, you know, I hadn't really thought about that. So then that kind of takes you out of that. I mean, that's the thing that's great about festivals is that everybody's in this one place, and you get to kind of hang out and and kind of mull over the day. Do you still find time to do that, or are you literally like back in like your hotel room or at a, at a lounge somewhere, cafe, like writing and not having that opportunity as much? I mean, I still, I, you know, I make time to do that. It doesn't, um, as with you know. So many other things in this modern life of ours, the time does not, you know, sort of uh, just present itself to you. But no, I mean, it is it's it's important to me, um, especially living in a city like Philadelphia, where, you know, is not a kind of a media center of the country. I have a lot of friends that I have just basically made by by going to Toronto for, I think, 18 years now um, running. You know, a lot of great critics whose work I love reading. And that's, you know, I think for a lot of people, even people in New York who all you know, are always often kind of running around doing their own things. I think, you know, festivals are a great way to kind of, you know, spend some time with colleagues and also, you know, people who aren't pros, but just love movies. I mean, one of the things that's great about Toronto as opposed to a festival like Cannes, I mean, it, it is sort of, I think it's at some point they may have called themselves the People's Film Festival, but it's, you know, it's, it's huge. It's in a major city, uh, really kind of, you know, takes over the town. And it's, it's a place where, I mean, I know people both in Toronto and from elsewhere in the country who just take a week off work mm. and go to Canada and see movies for mm-hmm. a week. And that's, I mean, you really have to, I, I don't know if I would do that if, <laughs> if it wasn't, if it wasn't my job, you know, it's, but it, it really is an audience made up of people who just, you know, care that much and are that dedicated to, to film culture and to seeing new things. And that's one of the things that's really beautiful about it. So what was one of the things that you were excited about having seen and we can maybe keep an eye out for. Yes. I mean, uh, my, my favorite movie, um, and I don't really, you know, distinct, some people distinguish between favorite and best, and I'm not one of them. Um, <laughs> the, the movie that really just kind of, you know, grabbed my heart and made it swell is uh, Lady Bird, which is the first um, movie directed by Greta Gerwig, who I think people probably know as an actress at this point, and is also, you know, a writer of, you know, pretty longstanding. Um, most recently, she's kind of co-written some movies with her, um, I guess, partner, uh, Noah Baumbach, including um, Frances Ha and Mistress America. Um, this is the first thing that she has directed on her own. She doesn't appear in it, but it star- it's kind of based on or inspired by uh, her childhood in Sacramento and stars Saoirse Ronan as this kind of t- sort of, I guess, mid-sized town teenager who's a little bit desperate to distinguish herself the title is kind of she's decided that her name is her name is christine but she's decided that it's now lady bird and insists that her parents um call her that and you know it's a it's a coming of age movie and it fits a lot of things in that template but it's just very smart about little details about um kind of social dynamics um uncommonly smart for an american movie about uh, economics and and social class and the way um something as you know, simple as kind of the house you grow up in, you know, the, the physical space you inhabit really defines you as a child and, and, you know, what it's like to invite friends who are not from the same social strata as you to your house. Um, her character's, you know, working class and, and it's hard for her to kind of have people over. It becomes this kind of, 
you know, long running secret in the movie about, um, you know, she falls in love with a, you know, fellow um, with a boy in the theater program. Um, who I think if many girls who did that in, in high school can tell you how that works out. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's just really a wonderful, smart, you know, extremely well cast. Her parents are played by uh, Tracy Letts and Laurie Metcalf, who are both incredible actors. Um, and it's it's just really kind of warm and, and smart and uh, full of, um, you know, life and wisdom and um, just, a, just a really like, you know, not the most sort of, you know, quote unquote, like challenging movie there, but just one of those things that just makes you, you know, really kind of skip out of the theater. Okay, cool. So, so we'll keep our eyes for Lady Bird. Yeah. So hopefully that'll probably be opening this fall, you think? In, in November, I think. Okay. Yeah. Any other just kind of, I mean, I don't know if you have an opportunity to see, I know there's a, a big experimental category and, and nonfiction. Any, do you, do you, or do you pretty much have to sort of stay in kind of the, the, the narrative feature realm for for the coverage that you're doing for slate i mean you know one of well, yeah one of the one of the unfortunate things about the sort of the new as i mentioned the kind of the new paradigm of coverage now is you do get you know there is a strong temptation to kind of chase the same movies that everyone else is chasing and i try to you know break out of that um sometimes but you know you you do i mean i was i was very much kind of focused on sort of world premieres this year which um toronto has kind of you know, step down on a little bit, a lot of, of the bigger movies there, including um, Lady Bird, um, movies like Darren Aronofsky's Mother, um, Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water, uh, kind of, sometimes they get kind of retroactively defined as Toronto movies, but most of those, you know, a lot of them premiered in, in uh, Venice and Telluride, which kind of follow immediately before it on the festival calendar. But um, I mean, one of this is, you know, not so far off the beaten path, but um, because it doesn't come out till next year, it was a little less seen. Um, there's a new movie by um, Armando Dianucci, who people may know from uh, Veep or uh, In the Loop. Um, his uh, second feature is called The Death of Stalin. Um, it is, not surprisingly, about the death of Stalin. Um, and, and sort of more specifically, it's this kind of very black uh, slapstick farce set um, that, that kind of takes in the kind of power vacuum and the squabbling to fill it um, right after Stalin dies in, in the 1950s in, in Soviet Union. And it's, it's cast, you know, with really great um, comic actors or, you know, actors who are, are great who also do comedy. People like um, Steve Buscemi and, and Jeffrey Tambor. Uh, Steve Buscemi plays Khrushchev, <laughs> um, which should give you an idea of, of the tone of the film right there. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's as you'd expect from Armando Iannucci, you know, very, very funny, very kind of fast and frenetic, but there's a really kind of fascinatingly dark undertone to it. The opening scene of the sequence of the movie is, is kind of this bit where, I'll do kind of the short version, basically Stalin kind of you know, calls up in the middle of a radio live radio broadcast of this orchestra concerto and says, oh, this is so great, I want a recording of it. And they're not actually recording. Um, so then they have to, without admitting that they weren't recording in the first place, kind of round everybody up, you know, get a new audience back in and re-record the thing. And, it, and it's this, you know, there's a, a bit in it where the orchestra conductor kind of is running around and frenzied and smacks his head into a fire bucket and knocks himself out. So there's <laughs> very broad slapstick, but it's also undercut by the idea that if they screw this up, they're all going to, you know, get sent to the gulag or shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's the, the violence is kind of kept mostly off screen, but the also the movie also reminds you that there's this real kind of totalitarian terror undergirding the whole thing. And, it, and it's a kind of fascinating mix. You know, she said when he was introducing the movie that he, you know, after he did, created Veep and ran that show for four years and then kind of stepped aside to do other things. He said he'd kind of had enough of doing American, American politics for a while and, um, you know, made this movie before the election. Uh, but he said that he kind of inadvertently ended up making a, a movie about a country whose people are terrified by a delusional narcissist. Mm. Um, so it, it kind of, okay. it's hard for things not to be about that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, now let's talk a little bit about Camden, Maine. What's the actual title of the festival? It's the Camden International Film Festival. Okay, Camden International Film Festival. It's in a small town on the coast of Maine. Uh, festival I hadn't really heard a lot about, and as I mentioned, all of a sudden a bunch of people were going. And what uh, what made you want to go there this year? Um, Well, you know, the festival was was good enough to to fly me out this year for the second time. I was also there in 2014. But it is one of those film festivals, I think it's kind of – 
you know, coming up in the ranks behind better known. It's a documentary film festival, I should mention, and it's kind of coming up in the ranks behind better known uh, American doc festivals like Full Frame and and True False as one that's really focused, you know, very much on it on its uh, community. It's actually kind of spread over three three towns in in Maine, it's sort of centered in Camden, but also in Rockland and, and Rockport, and they're you know, from what I've seen both times, you know, very sort of supportive and engaged. I think, you know, grateful to have something this this interesting coming to them. But it's also become kind of an open secret among documentary filmmakers themselves. That this is really a great place to, you know, show their movies to an engaged audience as opposed to, you know, Toronto has tons of documentaries, but they always inevitably get overshadowed by the kind of movie star movies. Uh, and then it also has, I, I think they're billing themselves now as the kind of the incubator for the next generation of nonfiction storytellers, maybe getting that slogan slightly wrong. But they have a lot of kind of professional mentorship um, programs, both during the festival and year round kind of baked into it. There's a public pitch session Saturday morning where six groups of filmmakers will get up in front of a funding panel um, from places like the Sundance Institute and uh, the Ford Foundation and and pitch their project. I, you know, I've talked to, you know, hundreds of filmmakers about their, you know, process and technique, but you don't really talk to them about kind of the pitch and like, how did you, you know, get the money for this thing in the first place? Mm-hmm. So it's a really fascinating part of the, the process to have that little window on. Any, any particular documentaries that really st- uh, stood out for you? Uh, you know, several. I mean, I saw, I guess, five this year. Um, and they were all great. I mean, it's a small festival. I think there are um, 70 films in it, something like that. Mostly all of them kind of shown once over a four-day period. So it's you know a lot more tightly curated than a festival like Toronto, which has, I think, 325 features, something like that. So uh, you know, I mentioned with The Death of Stalin that it's kind of you know hard. It's always hard to make a movie that's not about Donald Trump in some way. And um, there's a movie called Love Means Zero, which is a kind of a portrait of Nick Boletari, who if you watch tennis in the 80s is a name, especially American tennis, is a name you know very well, who's this kind of legendary and kind of legendarily tyrannical tennis coach whose major innovation was kind of starting this colony and basically taking teenage potential tennis prodigies away from their parents, technically giving them their education, but just, you know, schooling them, kind of working them like dogs day in, day out, would kind of invite the the most special ones, people like Andre Agassi and, and Jim Courier, to, you know, live with him in his house, eat breakfast at his table as, you know, teenagers. And then if their performance started to slack off, they would just get, you know, sometimes sent a letter saying you're out and, and told to leave. And the director, Jason Cohen, said, I mean... Before for the movies, like of course, of course, this movie's about Donald Trump. You can't make something now that isn't. Um, but it and for him, it's really became a movie about kind of winning at all costs, and it, it very much has to do with the growth of tennis. Really, you know, arguably, kind of certainly in the men's game, the last really dominant period of American players. And you can see him. I mean, he had a huge emphasis on kind of power game and physical fitness. So you can see the seeds. You can see a line going back to kind of the flamboyant styles of, of people like, you know, Jimmy Connors and um, and McEnroe, but also kind of laying the groundwork for, for people like the Williams sisters. But it also just becomes, you know, think about kind of, you know, winning at all costs. You know, certainly as someone who watched tennis during that period and, and whatever, that's really exciting, but it's also just as fascinating um, Will that be study. a documentary that is going to have a theatrical release or looking for a broadcast or um, it online? It probably will have a theatrical release if only to qualify it for awards. It's a Showtime production, so it will definitely end up on cable at some point to qualify for the Oscars. You have to play uh, a, a week theatrical. in New York and L.A., or maybe it's New York or L.A. for docs. Um, you know, I, I had one other thing that I wanted to ask you about, which I, I just kind of read about, and I'm not... I don't have all the details, but I, I believe there's been some type of a merger between like Fandango and Rotten Tomatoes. Is that? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so that now those reviews are basically when you go to book a movie ticket, uh, the Rotten Tomato reviews are kind of showing up right on the on the site. And uh, I'm sure some of your reviews are obviously in Rotten Tomatoes. And mm-hmm. kind of how do you think having that direct correlation between a film ticket and a movie review side by side? Well, it's it's interesting because there has been this kind of you know, movie industry consensus building kind of against Rotten Tomatoes recently, mostly because when, you know, a big movie comes out and the reviews are negative and then the box office doesn't do well, um, the, the studios kind of like to blame, you know, quote unquote, the critics for that. But it's, you know, despite Not what... Not bad movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, and the funny thing is if you look at the, 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 just look at the data, I mean, it's, you know, despite all the, the 
kind of stereotypes about you know elitist out of touch critics and whatever. You look certainly at like mainstream like major releases. I mean, there's a very close correlation between reviews and and box office most of the time and i don't think that's because critics are influencing box office i think it's because largely like a movie that most critics like is a movie that most people will like and a movie that most critics don't like is a movie that even if people are motivated to see in the first place because they want to see the new transformers movie or whatever they're gonna you know come back and tell their friends that it wasn't worth it and and then the box office will kind of die off after that i mean the weird thing about rotten tomatoes is it kind of makes critics more powerful than ever as a mass, um, but individual critics kind of less and less important because people just look at that number, mm. which is really just a thumbs up and thumbs down. As opposed to actually kind of reading the reviews. Yes, and, gotcha. and you know, Rotten Tomatoes does aggregate the reviews and you can click through, um, but I found, you know, having run, you know, a, a blog on my own and, and I mean, it, the click-through numbers from Rotten Tomatoes are not great. I mean, it does allow people to go, to go through the individual reviews, but people often don't. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I'm going to sort of wrap up our conversation here, um, but I, I did want to talk a little bit about um, the Emmys and uh, kind of the theme of this morning's show is is playing uh, soundtrack music from TV shows. And I'm going to go out of, of this interview with a, a set of music from Master of None. And had you kind of had a chance to see any of the that that series yeah no i've watched i've watched the whole thing um my wife and i are are, are big fans of it and um and it won you know i think a, a couple emmys last yeah. night including yeah. including um the, the landmark one was that uh aziz ansari co-wrote the thanksgiving episode of it with a woman named lena waith um who is i think not only the first black woman to win um a, an emmy for comedy writing but I, I believe the first to be ever be nominated in that category the, the kind of the two big winners were The Handmaid's Tale and uh, Big Little Lies, the HBO series. And those are both, um, you know, as, as many people have pointed out, stories very focused on women and, and female characters and women's experience. Thank you, Sam, so much for coming in. I had so much else that I want to talk to you about, but, you know, so it'll be an opportunity to kind of bring you back when um, you're not uh, up in New York doing your gig at, at Slate. So we're going to take a listen to some music from Master of None, a little set. It's interesting that you did mention uh, Big Little Eyes because that was actually the the series that, that took home the Emmy that is in a new category this year. The, uh, the Emmys actually created a, a new category for outstanding uh, music supervision. It's really the, the music supervisor who plays the critical role of, of helping establish kind of the atmosphere and the tone of the series, handpicking tracks to go with the action and then getting them cleared for broadcast. And, and uh, Master of None, Zach Cowie, a self-proclaimed crate digger with over 10,000 vinyl albums, which he drew a lot from his knowledge and love for such thing as Italian pop and uh, uh, Bollywood movies. And I, I was really hoping he was going to pick it up, but it ended up going to the music supervisor of Big Little Lies. Let's take a listen to a, a set of songs here from Master of None uh, here on Pulling Focus on 106.5 FM.
però Catenazzo che donna sei Io delle donne non mi fido Il corteggiamento è un rito Troppo spesso si finisce Che una donna ti tradisce E non mi importa se son bionde Non mi importa se son more A me basta che siano tonde E disposte a far l'amore Io da bambino veramente fui cacciato dalla scuola Perché la professoressa mi faceva molto gola Quando facevo il militare Poi la moglie del tenente Mi faceva le moine Di una presa tra la gente Perciò bambina Se sono qui per te stasera È una fortuna solamente a colazione e le rosse le rifiuto ne ho già fatto indigestione quando sono di tre quarti le regalo a qualche amico se decido per più tardi le conservo dentro il frigo ho deciso adesso è fatta con quegli occhi lì da gatta nel mio letto ci scommetto figli come un vaporetto perciò bambina se sono qui per te stasera è una fortuna Take off that RV 
So that's Soft Cell, Say Hello, Wave Goodbye, from the Emmy Award-winning Netflix comedy series, Master of None, written by and starring Aziz Anasari. Uh, before Soft Cell, we heard the Italian disco singer Pino D'Angio do OK, OK. There was an excerpt from uh, something called uh, Disco Dancer uh, by Parvati Khan, and we started that off with a really great piece of music by longtime film composer uh, Ennio Morricone, Alla Luce del Giorno. So thanks for listening to this morning's edition of Pulling Focus, and we're going to be heading out on something from another award-winning television series. This is the uh, Jeff Russo Music for the Dramatic series Fargo. 